right, so yeah, any of those older kids that want to go with Mrs. Boylan can do so. I might be having some, some mic issues here today. Uh, thank you all for being here this morning. My name is Brent Fugate. I'm the senior pastor here at Byfield Parish Church. It is awesome to worship here with you all today on this. It's warm. It is a warm day, uh, but, but we will get through it, I'm sure. Um, so this summer, we have been looking at Bible passages that focus on the Holy Spirit for a series entitled Cognitive Behavioral Theology. If you're visiting here with us today and you want to know what that's all about, I think you'll have to go back and listen to some future, some past sermons. But the basis of it is the Bible focuses a lot on having the right intellectual beliefs and the actions that should spring from those beliefs. Thoughts and behaviors align. Scripture tells us what to believe and how to act. God has given us a lot of clarity on these matters. If we want to know how to live, we only need to consult the commands God has given throughout his word. God's law tells us how to live. Unfortunately, we are not very good at doing what God commands. We are law breakers. Today, we are going to look at a text from the 8th chapter of Romans that talks about the law, the Holy Spirit, and Christians. The truth of this text, tell us, uh, Tom, I think I'm just going to go. Pull it further down. All right, pull it further down. I'm normally higher on the mic, but uh, we'll give that a shot. All right, the truths of this text tell us to what we need to know and what we need to believe intellectually about the Spirit, but also how the Spirit affects the way we live out those beliefs. So if you would please turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Those verses can be found in the Pew Bible on page 887, and they will also be projected behind me. Let's begin in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life 
because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Paul is great at writing arguments. The arguments he makes in this text has three key points we are going to focus on in regards to the Holy Spirit. One, by the Spirit, Christians are able to fulfill the law as opposed to being condemned by it. Two, the Holy Spirit operating in Christians is opposed to the natural flesh which makes our fulfillment of God's law, his holy expectations, impossible and death inevitable. And three, ultimately the Holy Spirit will fully bring Christians into the life of the Spirit. Paul's argument can be summed up by saying the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to be obedient to the law and to be raised to new life. Paul's first point is that the spirit Christians are able, is that through the spirit, Christians are able to fulfill the law as opposed to being condemned by it. To understand why this is a good thing, we must know why the law Paul refers to is something Christians should want to be freed from. The law Paul refers to in these verses is not bad. It was given by God. Moses received the law, which he communicated to the people of Israel. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, he points out that even those that were not exposed to the Mosaic law still had an intuitive awareness of the more general law of God that applies to all people. The law of, of God communicates to all people how we should operate within God's purposes. In other sermons, I have described God's law as being a sort of instruction manual. God, our creator, tells us how to live in accord with his good design. Humanity's problem with God's law is that our interaction with it inevitably leads to our condemnation. God's law reflects God's moral standards, which, like him, are perfect. God's complete goodness is the standard all people must live up to. That is a high bar to clear. Even in the simplest task of life, perfection is elusive. All sports are the pursuit of perfection within a circumscribed set of rules. Professional bowlers' ambition is to roll a perfect 300 game but this only happens an average of one out of every 460 times. 
The best shooters in the NBA struggle to hit 90% of their foul shots. The odds of a golfer making a hole in one are 12,500 to one. Over the 150 years of Major League Baseball history and over 218,000 games played, there have been 23 official perfect games by the current definition. Perfectly obeying God's law is no more within our capacity than hitting a home run. Jesus said the human spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It is not that we don't try to be perfect. Our abilities just don't cooperate with our intentions. The law weakened by the flesh could not save us from ourselves. The law of God is perfectly good. Unfortunately, its goodness highlights our badness. God made it possible for us to do what we can't do for ourselves. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit these words from the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 of today's text are as good a summation of the christian message as any verses in the bible there has been a tendency in certain christian circles in recent years to focus primarily on the first part of what I just read. Jesus was sent to condemn sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Yes, amen, hallelujah. We should certainly proclaim what Christ has done. It is right and good and holy to do so. The final part of those verses is no less important than the first. Let's read it again. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Walking according to the spirit is not a bonus Heart of Christianity. It is integral to what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is a result of each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working in concert to bring about a new creation in the individual Christian. We can talk about the different roles that each person of the Trinity undertakes on our behalf. God sovereignly plans. Jesus provides the means of our salvation. The Holy Spirit carries out God's purposes and Jesus' provision in the human heart. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should all be celebrated and recognized. This should not make us think their work functions independently of one another. 
two out of three or one out of three of the Trinity is not sufficient for the change that needs to happen in you or I to be accomplished. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are unified in their intention for the benefit of Christians. Through the combined efforts of all three members, we are freed from the law so that we might fulfill it instead of being condemned by it. Paul's second point is the Holy Spirit operating in Christians is opposed to the natural flesh which makes our fulfillment of God's law, his holy expectations impossible and death inevitable. Again and again, Paul contrasts the spirit with the flesh. In verses 1 through 7, the word flesh is used nine times. When a word gets repeated a lot in the Bible, we are supposed to pay attention. 5% of the words in this section are flesh. Paul is hyper-focused on the flesh. The results of the operation of the flesh in us are problematic. The flesh weakens God's law to the point it cannot function. Jesus had to come in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn the flesh. The mind set on the flesh is death. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And those in the flesh cannot please God. With the flesh being such a problem and focus, we better know exactly what Paul is talking about when he writes flesh. The Greek word translated flesh is sarks. Flesh is the translation most English versions of the Bible opt for. At the time Paul was writing, sark was a common word that could mean either flesh or body. Some read these verses and they, they see a dualism in what Paul is saying. They believe that Paul is arguing the body itself, physical human existence, lies at the heart of our problems. This was a common belief in the pagan culture of the time. They thought if the soul could only be free from the physical body that dragged it down, all would be well. If this were what Paul meant when he wrote Sarks, then it would mean the bodies we all inhabit are a kind of living prison. This is not how the Bible talks about physical existence, and it is not what Paul means by his use of the word translated flesh. In Douglas Moo's commentary on Romans, he points out that flesh is not, it's not the flesh of our body are the bodies themselves, but the this worldly orientation that all people share. It is this power that the law cannot break. Paul is using flesh as a fill-in for the sinful inclination all people have to seek their salvation in this world. The flesh is the determining factor in how those without the Spirit live their lives. The greedy person and the lustful person are both motivated by their fleshly impulses. 
These impulses drive people towards sin by convincing them that salvation, peace, and satisfaction is available. They can just get enough of what they're seeking. Not all fleshly people are hedonists, though. Not all people that are fleshly are, the, are those that we think of. Some are very religious. Legalistic people, those who try to follow all the rules to gain their own salvation, are some of the most fleshly people you will ever meet. Their minds are set on things of the flesh. They are obsessed. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, whether they be legalists or hedonists. In both cases, every action is tainted by a fleshly perspective. The Holy Spirit counteracts the flesh. Verse 3 begins by saying, God has done. God repudiates the flesh in us through Jesus and this Holy Spirit. The Spirit plays a key role in undoing the operation of the flesh in Christians. The Holy Spirit does what we cannot do for ourselves. He overcomes the flesh in us. This work of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time act. It is an ongoing experience. We walk according to to the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, we cannot walk in the way of God. One of the most dangerous things a Christian can believe is that they don't need the Spirit. That they are fine on their own. No person, whether they be a Christian or not, is able to fulfill God's expectations apart from the Holy Spirit. Our dependence is ongoing. This does not mean we are passive in our relationship to the Spirit. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The grammar of the verb set communicates active participation. Setting your mind is directing your focus. Those who live according to the Spirit will exhibit intentionality in their thinking, which will manifest itself in their behavior. The Holy Spirit is not a puppet master. He works through relationship with believers. We can't do what we need to do without Him. Neither does the Spirit simply take control of our lives. You will sometimes hear Christians say they desire the life of and the peace of the Spirit. The Spirit is ready to supply those things. As these verses make clear, for life and peace to result, individuals must set their minds on the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works with our intentionality to overcome the flesh which derails our ability to satisfy the law. Paul's final point, and this is what we look forward to, is that ultimately the Holy Spirit will fully bring Christians into the life of the Spirit. In verse 9, Paul states a clear either or. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
There's no ambiguity here. Those who lack the Spirit are not Christians. A person's theology could be flawless. But if they do not have the Spirit, they are not Christians. Being a good person doesn't make you a Christian. The Spirit is the seal of our faith. According to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, those verses say, In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This statement from Ephesians lines up with what is being said here in Romans. Paul is telling the Roman Christians that their life in the Spirit is guaranteed. Because he knows, or at least suspects, this isn't how they feel on a daily basis. Christians often report feeling as if they are moving through life with various levels of spiritual deadness. This understandably causes concern. Does the lack of a feeling mean that person is not a Christian? Paul would say, no, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. It is in no way unusual for the experience of a Christian to be a tug of war between the pool of our fleshly bodies, which drag us towards death, and the presence of the Holy Spirit within us that beckons us towards life. The end result of this tug of war between fleshly body and the Holy Spirit for Christians will be the complete victory of the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit has already proven he can bring life out of death. There are times it might feel to us that the victory of the Holy Spirit is impossible for us. We get overwhelmed by the world. An even more desperate situation is when we get overwhelmed by the flesh that still exerts so much influence on our lives from within. As bleak as our own situation may appear to us, it was not as bleak as what the Holy Spirit overcame with Jesus. Jesus entered death with all the sin and shame of mankind on him. The Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit will even restore our flesh. These mortal bodies that are dragged towards death by the influence of the flesh in us, the separation between soul and body that many in Paul's day thought was necessary for humanity to to transcend itself, is overcome by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not dispense with our flesh. Instead, the Holy Spirit redeems our flesh. In the new heavens, and the new earth, we will have physical bodies. These physical bodies will be perfectly aligned with our perfected soul. Mind, body, and soul will exist in communion with the Lord. This completely perfected alignment of the person is the ultimate ambition of the Holy Spirit for each of us. That is what we set our minds on. When it happens, we will be able to freely 
and perfectly be all that God intended us to be when he created us, we will be keepers of God's law. Today we broke Paul's argument in these verses down into three key points. One, by the Spirit, Christians are able to fulfill the law as opposed to being condemned by it. Two, the Holy Spirit operating in Christians as opposed to the natural flesh, which makes our fulfillment of God's law, His holy expectations impossible and death inevitable. And three, ultimately the Holy Spirit will fully bring Christians into the life of the Spirit. Paul's thesis is straightforward. The Holy Spirit changes who we are so we can live in accord with God's law instead of being condemned to death by it. As Christians, we can have confidence in knowing that the Holy Spirit will complete the task that he has initiated in us. We should also know that to experience as much of that ultimate result as possible in the present, we need to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. A life focused on the Holy Spirit will be a life that is aligning itself with God's law, His perfect purposes for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your Spirit. We thank you for your law. We thank you for Jesus atoning for our sins, Lord. I pray that as we move through our lives, that we would set our minds on the things of the Spirit so that we might more fully experience the, the peace and the joy and the freedom that the Spirit brings about in us by, by aligning us with your perfect purposes for us, Lord. We pray that that would happen in our lives and that we would focus on the things of the Spirit as opposed to the fleshly distractions of this world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.